Welcome to the 142nd episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Rutherford. Stay tuned for my interview with fantasy author Brad Bowyer, author of The Flames of Shadam Cora. Brad is also the co-host of another podcast, Speculate, the podcast for writers, readers, and fans. I definitely recommend Speculate. I've recently been listening to a lot of the back episodes of Speculate. They interview many fantasy and science fiction authors, really in-depth interviews, and where they discuss uh, writing processes and writing techniques. So definitely check that out. And you can either search for it on iTunes or your favorite podcast app or go to Speculate SF all one word.com. Stay tuned for the interview with Brad Bowyer. Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Bradley Bollier, the author of several fantasy novels, including The Flames of Shadam Cora, The Straits of Galahesh, and The Winds of Kalakovo. Brad, welcome to the podcast. Uh, thanks very much for having me on. Glad to be here. Sure, sure. Well, can I have you read the first page or two of your new book, The Flames of Shadam Cora? Yeah, certainly. So this is uh, chapter one from the, uh, the third book in the trilogy. Nakanda grunted as he attacked the rocky red slope. He pushed as well as he was able, but he, was, he still had several hundred yards before he would reach the summit. So he stopped and leaned against a boulder, the bright color of coral. His breath left him so quickly here. A hot wind blew, picking up dust and forcing him to draw his gutra across his face. Even so, he had to squint against the dust and the bite of the sand. The wind pulled at his caftan and the loose pants he wore beneath, until at last the wind died down. The path he was following was easy enough to spot, but it was also treacherous. It was important he be able to see far enough into the desert beyond, though. Sarush and Ushai had already been gone a day longer than planned, and he told Atiana that they would stay only one night more. If they didn't return by tomorrow morning, Atiana, Nikander, Ashan, and Sukaram would have to go into Andakara to learn what had become of them. Behind Nikander was a veil with a meager stream running through it. They timed their entrance to the desert to take advantage of the spring rains, but the gentle weather wouldn't last much longer. It made it all the more important for them to get into the gaji and out before it became too dry. His breath had returned. There was part of him that didn't want to complete this climb. He knew what would happen at the top. It scared him, and yet he was unable to, de- to, de- he was unable to deny the urge to go there, to look upon the desert below from such a height. So he took to the path once more. His breathing became labored halfway up but he pushed now that he was so close. Near the top, the slope was not so brutal, but he still found it impossible to catch his breath. Eventually, however, he came to a narrow ridge. The wind was cooler. It blew more fiercely than below. Ahead of him, the red desert floor opened up. It went on forever, flat as could be. Who would have guessed that so much land could be amassed in one place? He was so used to the islands, so used to the span of the sea, that he never thought what it would be like to see something so grand and humbling as this. It was a dangerous place, but beautiful, 
perhaps more so because of the danger. He stared at the edge of the cliff ahead. The ridge was wide in places, but this was its highest point, and also the narrowest. Only a score of paces separated him from the edge. He stepped forward, feeling the wind against his fingertips. He took another step, felt the soles of his boots scrape. He had hoped in the days that had followed the events at the bridge on Galahesh that his sense of the wind would return to him. He had hoped that he could once more feel the touch of the Havahajan. He had hoped he could summon the wind as he once had. But the days had turned into weeks, and the weeks into months, and still he felt nothing. He had tried from the towers of Galostina, and later Radoskoya. He had tried from the mountains of, U- of Uyedensk. He had tried from the perches of the Erie and the decks of windships, but each and every time he'd felt nothing, as was true now. He took another step forward. The wind gusted, tugging at his clothes. He breathed deep, swallowing the spit that filled his mouth now that he was so very near the edge. The desert yawned wider and wider, and yet it was not this he was most aware of, but the sheer height of this vantage. With one more long step, he reached the edge. The wind howled for a moment along the face of the cliff below. The desert seemed as wide as the sky. The ground was rocky, the vegetation sparse. The red floor of the dry plain ahead felt limitless. In the distance, below the cloudless blue sky, was a line of dark mountains. But it didn't feel like they encompassed the desert, or even obstructed it in any way. It felt as if the mountains were merely one small obstacle, and that the desert continued on and on, eating more of the world as it went. So that's the opening, and it goes on to um, show Nikander's yearning for uh, a power he once held, uh, and um, through the course of things, seems to have lost. Great. Well, if someone listening hasn't heard about your novel yet, The Flames of Shadam Korra, which you were just reading from, how would you describe the novel and the in the series, The Lays of Enuskaya? Well, it's um, I I like to compare it a little bit to um, well, Song of Ice and Fire meets Earthsea is kind of the elevator pitch that I use. <laughs> um, Song of Ice and Fire because George Martin was a big influence on me. Um, I like big, epic, sweeping tales uh, with, filled with gray characters. Uh, the Earthsea reference is not so much in style, but more in form. Uh, the the world that the the characters start out in anyway is uh, are in these cold, inhospitable archipelagos. Uh, and th- there's a lot of Russian influence uh, in the story. Uh, I, I base uh, the, the cultures that you deal with first uh, largely off of Muscovite Russia uh, and some Persian, uh, ancient Persia and Ottoman Empire influence as well. Uh, and this, the story opens with a, a prince of the realm, Prince Nikander, who we just uh, uh, heard about, uh, and in the winds of Kalakovo, he finds a, a boy who may have the ability to heal a blight that's sweeping through the islands, causing a wasting disease uh, that nobody can heal. Uh, and he also finds that there's a violent uh, extremist sect that wants to use the same boy to cause widespread devastation. And so the the story is really about this tug of war between uh, Prince Nikander and this this extremist group to unlock the boy's secrets before the other one does. 
and then the um, the next two books uh, widen uh, the conflict. It, uh, things spread onto this mainland of uh, Irstan La to uh, the west of the islands that used to control them, and they've kind of set their sights there once more. So it um, it expands from there, uh, and and the the conflict expands. Great. Well, uh, you just you you mentioned. Um, uh, earlier, uh, George R. R. Martin and being inspired by the the Song of Ice and Fire, yeah. Um, and, and obviously, I mean, now, I mean, uh, with Game of Thrones, the the TV series, Martin has become, you know, and the series has become such a huge popular culture phenomenon. But um, you know, uh, you know, obviously, the the books are what started it all. I'm just curious, um, in your own kind of um, experience and in your own life, how did you originally get interested in in the fantasy genre? Um, well, it would have to go back to um, third grade. Was when one of my friends, um, Jim Vote, I even remember his name, uh, tipped me uh, off to The Hobbit. Uh, he had been reading it, and I think he had been into Lord of the Rings by that point. Uh, and I, I found it in the library and read it and loved it. Uh, it was the first fantasy I'd come across, uh, and I went right from there into the Lord of the Rings, um, and and I was just I was really just blown away by the, the the depth of the story and just the the feeling of age and antiquity, how how much of a a real place uh, that it felt like, and that stuck with me through throughout everything. I got into science fiction uh, as well, uh, but I my touchstone was always really secondary world. Uh, fantasy um, and, and kind of these you know larger stories um, uh, always attracted me. Sure, sure. Well, I know that in fantasy there are a lot of common tropes, um, quest novels, uh, the typical European medieval uh, setting or world. Um, when you set out to write your series, did you have in mind um, uh, that you wanted to create something? unique from from those kind of uh common uh themes or tropes yeah you know i i did want to step away from things i mean i I get kind of um i don't know uh picky maybe pedantic a little bit about uh not wanting to copy you know uh, other things and and i know that's impossible to do i mean we're we're all sort of um following in the footsteps of those who came before so you know no one's going to be writing a, a completely original story um, but by the same token, I, I didn't want to sort of retread things that I had read over and over again, you know, through my, my teen years and into my 20s. Um, and it was kind of late 20s, early 30s when I was starting to get more serious. And then mid-30s, by the time I started this series, um, you know, and so I, I, had, I had tried my hand more or less at kind of the, the typical, you know, Western European uh, fantasy story. That was, um, you know, one of my trunk novels was, you know, of that type. Actually, actually two different uh, trunk novels. Um, and so, I, you know, I, I really wanted to try something different. And, um, you know, the, the Russian angle sort of came uh, organically from the, the world. Uh, I, I used a mapping program, actually, to, uh, to generate it. Uh, there's an outfit uh, that creates a... Uh, program called fractal uh, fractal mapper i get confused with fractal terrains which is a different one a competing product but you can generate this world given certain parameters like how large it is how much water coverage how much rainfall temperature uh moons uh on and on and um i used it to generate the archipelagos uh in, in a kind of a form that i liked and and i figured they were would be kind of cold and inhospitable and um and that sort of led me to you know 
Russia, you know, something uh, a bit different, but not too foreign from what people were were used to. Um, and then the um, the Persian angle kind of followed from that. I wanted something that was, you know, n- near enough that it would make some sense to the reader. It wouldn't be completely foreign uh, to what they might expect from, uh, you know, Russian-based society. Um, but uh, but something with a different flavor than than what I had started with, uh, just to play counterpoint to it. So, um, so yeah, you know, I, I wanted to have something that was familiar. You know, it's it's it, it would be off-putting to have it be completely you know different than you know what people sort of expect. But you know, with a new flavor, something a new twist that they could um, you know enjoy. Great. Well, I, I know that you were a finalist in the Writers of the Future contest, and you were published in their annual anthology. What what was that Writers of the Future experience like for you? Um, you know, it was it was a lot of fun. I was actually um, I placed. I was um, uh, more than a finalist. So they they have the you know first, second, and third place, and then they have the the published finalists as well. Right. Um, so I took second place in my quarter uh, back in two thousand four. Um, and you know that was uh, it was a good experience. Uh, I had been entering that. Uh, you know, it's a for, for those who don't know, it's a uh, a free contest that's uh, that was set up by the Elron well Elron Hubbard and then his estate now, uh, and it's it's free to enter. And um, uh, those who win get get uh, flown out to a location, usually in Hollywood area where they're located, or sometimes they rove. They went to NASA one year and, and some other locations over the years, and uh, you you do a workshop. Uh, and my workshop was with uh, Katie Wentworth uh, and uh, Tim Powers, you know, who has has run it for quite a while, uh, and and that was a really great experience. They have some other. Uh, sort of friends of the contest come in and speak to you. So uh, Sean Williams came for the week. Um, Jay Lake was there. Uh, Anne McCaffrey and Todd McCaffrey came in uh, for for a talk. Uh, Jerry Pornell, uh, Charles Brown. It was it was a really uh, whirlwind week uh, when we went out there. And then they have this big sort of gala with um, the award ceremony. Uh, so it was, yeah, it was wonderful. It was I, I had I had sold uh, a single story up to that point, but to a non-paying market. Uh, so that was my first um, my first pro sale, uh, and so it did kind of set the bar pretty high. It was, um, and and I still keep in touch with a fair number of the people that I went to the workshop with. Uh, so that's that was one of the more rewarding parts too, just having this um, sense of. Uh, group community that you can you know keep in touch with over the years um uh yeah so have a sense of history about it so yeah it was it was nice sure sure i understand you went as well right i I did i did um i was there in 2001 um okay so so i'm i'm curious about um i mean you you talked earlier about how you originally got interested in fantasy and reading the hobbit and lord of the rings and then going on from there um what was the what was the journey like for you in terms of moving from reading the genre and reading fantasy to actually writing it and and what was your you you mentioned also that you had a couple of novels as you referred to them as trunk novels what was your path to publication like um in getting your first novel published yeah it was i mean it was it was a long journey for me i uh, I went to school for computer science and engineering uh, at the Milwaukee School of Engineering, and um, you know, never at that time really thought about writing full time. I was I was always interested in uh, in reading, and uh, I read almost exclusively 
science fiction and fantasy, mostly fantasy. Uh, and um, when I started going to college, I, I started a, a novel then that I never did finish, uh, but I plotted it out. I, I wrote you know, several chapters. Um, and that, I think, got the ball rolling a little bit. Uh, and then in uh, at Gen Con, I grew up in Wisconsin, and I was actually very close to the Gen Con uh, uh, gaming convention when it was in Parkside University in uh, Kenosha. And it moved up to Milwaukee, which is not too far away. So I, I would go up there, uh, and then it moved to Indy eventually. But um, the Writer Symposium is a program that's that's been running, I think, for like 20 years at Gen Con. Uh, started back in, I think, the Milwaukee uh, time period. And um, Kiz Johnson was um, a writer... Um, mostly short fiction, but she has um, some novels as well. Just a, a beautiful writer. Uh, love her stuff, and she's very good at um, uh, passing along the craft as well. So I started going to those every year just because I was kind of curious, interested. And then she mentioned the Writers of the Future, which is why I started entering. Um, she talked about you know different books and resources. Uh, I, I got more serious about wanting to learn, so I went to more conventions. I joined the um, Critters uh, uh, critiquing site uh, first, and then I went to the online writing workshop, uh, which I liked a lot better, and uh, you know traded a lot of critiques, met a, met a lot more people, uh, learned a lot while I critiqued, um, and then uh, you know tried to um, hone my hone my craft a little bit. And then I started getting into more short stories because Kiyoshi had mentioned that was a great way to to kind of break in uh, and and advance your craft as well. Um, and so, you know, over the course of, oh boy, you know, eight plus years, I was writing you know, a few books, several short stories per year, uh, and, you know, starting to get more published, uh, and then, um, also trying to get an agent eventually, you know, so I, I had a few, uh, you know, several nibbles over the course of, uh, of those other books that didn't, you know, quite make the cut. Um, and I can see why now, uh, you know, they just, they just weren't <laughs> ready. I wasn't ready. Uh, and then the Winds of Kalakova was my debut novel, um, and that I actually pitched uh, directly to Jeremy Lassen of what was then Nightshade Books. Uh, that that relationship has changed now, but um, and he wanted to pick it up, and I, I got a agent uh, after the fact. Um, after he gave me the offer, I went and and got uh, a great agent, Russell Galen, and he worked out the arrangements uh, for the contract, and then. We got moving, so it was it was a slow process. It was not something that I looked at as uh, something I, I really thought I could do, um, you know, back in you know late high school, college days. Uh, but the more the time went on, the more I kept coming back to it and wanting to tell you know new stories, my stories. Great, great. Um, and you've also you mentioned you've also written short stories. Do you do you have a preference in in writing short stories versus novels? Yeah, I'm I'm a novel guy at heart for sure. I, I enjoy that form a lot. Um, I think I'm naturally more sort of attuned um, to that style, and probably because I didn't read a lot of short fiction when I was younger. Uh, right. So the sort of the cadence of uh, and timing of a novel is is sort of ingrained in me at this point. Uh, so short fiction was a was a tough um, haul for me. I, I had a I have a, a novelist pace, and that doesn't work well with short stories. And so I had to really work at trying to, um, uh, you know, hone things, cut things back, be more spare, start 
you know, later and sooner, cut things out in the middle. So, so the short story can actually work because they're, they're hard. You know, most markets, as you know, they're looking for something like, you know, four to, to 7,000 words is kind of the sweet spot for most markets these days. Um, and for me, that's not the most rewarding kind of story. You, you, you hardly get into it and, you, and you're done. Um, uh, and I admire people that can tell uh, a complete whole you know, wonderful story in that kind of space. Uh, Kij is among them, but you know, there's plenty of others that um, that do great at it. Right. Uh, but but and and I like it. I like it now. It's it's taken me a while to get to that point. Uh, to the point that I not only enjoy reading it, I enjoy writing it. Um, but um, but it, it is a bit of a battle because I'm fighting my natural urges. Sure, sure. Well, we mentioned earlier your, your you know how you originally read The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings and you also mentioned George R. R. Martin's Song of Ice and Fire. What what other books or authors have inspired you over the years in in terms of your own writing and and interest in fantasy and science fiction? Yeah, well, um, some of the early influences were um, when I came across Glenn Cook's uh, Black Company series. Um, I really loved that. You know, I was kind of used to the sort of the high, um, high and mighty view of uh, of tales. You know, a la Tolkien. You know, from the point of view of, of kings and you know queens, princes. You know, that sort of thing. And and that was great to get into. You know, the trenches, so to speak, with his books. Um, Roger Zelazny. Uh, and the the Amber series, you know, was a was a great uh, read for me. I really liked the the first person point of view uh, from with those books uh, and the sort of the family dynamics that he played out. I thought he was super good at showing um, the different types of characters. Uh, like through dialogue, you could just tell who was speaking. Uh, he was one of the, the earliest people that that really struck me. Uh, and uh, later on, um, Celia Friedman, C.S. Friedman. And her Cold Fire trilogy had a huge influence on me. I mean, that's she's uh, she's probably the closest person in style to me that I can point to. You know, that's made it you know really big. Uh, she's she's got a very serious, dark, uh, you know, oppressive, unrelenting you know tone in <laughs> in those books. And um, it was uh, again different. It was you know bordering on horror. It was kind of this you know dark fantasy type of um, type of tale. And I hadn't come across it before, so that was uh, that was great. That had a big effect. Uh, and then the, I think the last person I'll mention is uh, Guy Gabriel Kay. Um, I think he's uh, you know just wonderful prose, just beautiful, um, you know, bordering on the poetic, and um, and yet he tells a compelling tale at the same time. You know, so I think there's he shows he's one of the people that shows that there's room for. Uh, poetry and, and prose, you know, and I, I try to incorporate some of that. I'm, I'm certainly not, you know, near his level, and I, I don't really try to be, uh, but I think there's space for that in, um, in novels as sure. well. Sure. So, so given your, your, your path to publication, as we discussed earlier, what, what advice at this point, having published three novels, what, what advice would you have for aspiring writers who are listening, who, who may want to have their own novels or stories published? You know, um, one of my favorite pieces of advice, um, and it, it, it crystallized with Tim Powers, but it's it's been sh- uh, sort of reinforced uh, over the years, and even before that, uh, I, I didn't really realize it. Uh, but while I was at the Writers of the Future week uh, out in Hollywood, uh, Tim said that we were going to 
create, we were going to write a story in 24 hours. That was our assignment. Uh, and everybody sort of blanched, you know, at that notion because we're used to doing it in, in weeks, you know, not a day, certainly. And um, it, he gave us uh, tips for how to do that. And this is a common thing that, that you probably saw as well, where Tim gives you a random thing uh, and that's supposed to be used in your book. So I got a key. Um, and I could, that could be like a musical key. It didn't, it didn't have, have to be a literal interpretation. Uh, and, and that's what I did. I used it as like a musical uh, key for the, the story that I created. And, th- and then we also have to go out outside onto Hollywood Boulevard and just start talking to random people until uh, eventually, inevitably, they'll tell you something that's interesting uh, about themselves. And, and that's kind of a, a, a cue um, that you know that tells you that you can do that with really anything. It doesn't have to be people. It could be stories that you read. It could be uh, nonfiction articles. It could be an NPR show that you're listening to. You know, whatever things come up, and you should grab those things and use them. Um, so we all wrote our stories, and then Tim said, uh, you know, because we don't have as much time, we have a lot of things we're doing this week. We're not going to critique all of the stories. We're only going to critique three of them. And they picked the stories, and mine wasn't one of them. And I was I was crestfallen. Um, and he said, uh, you, you, uh, you know, don't be disappointed. You will find in, in, over your career that you will learn much more uh, from ha- critiquing work and then having other people critique the same work and finding the things that you miss because those will identify your blind spots. Uh, and so that's – I've used that I – I haven't used it over and over again. It's just something that happens. But it's, it's important, I think, to uh, – a, recognize that and then start to notice your blind spots. Um, and then the, the other piece that goes along with this, once once you kind of know what your strengths and weaknesses are and, and you, you want to start working on things, uh, I went to Clarion in 2006 and uh, Sam Delaney, uh, Chip Delaney, it was one of, it was our first instructor. Uh, and he said that it's, it's, not, it's not sufficient to just write because you can have bad habits uh, and you will be reinforcing those bad habits if all you do is blindly write words on a page. Uh, You have to look at what you're doing, analyze yourself, find those things that you're not very good at, and then actively work to strengthen those those mental muscles. Um, so, So I would say my biggest piece of advice is to get better at learning your weaknesses and that's not just from people critiquing you that's that's from you critiquing other people's stuff and having other people do it too and you can do that in at live workshops um you can do it at places like the online writing workshop you can do it at uh workshops that you host you know locally with local writers um but once you identify those things then make a plan to to work on those things and that could be that's why short stories are great because they're a short form. You can knock them out in a few days, a week, and and start to work on those things that aren't working for you. And that'll that'll just help build your craft over time. And and these things will start to work synergistically. You know, you'll be working on f- a fight scene or something, and you'll uh, intersperse some dialogue, and that will help your dialogue, uh, you know, come along, and and you know, vice versa. So it's um, I, I would say that. Great. What are you working on next? I uh, I sold a trilogy uh, to Daw Books recently. Uh, while I was working on the third book, the uh, the Flames of Shadam Korra that just came out, uh, I put together a proposal and um, and we sold to Betsy Wolheim at Daw uh, in spring, and that is due December uh, of this year. So I'm about um, 
two thirds of the way uh, through that book, and it's a it's a trilogy about a uh, kick-ass female pit fighter who rises up to uh, challenge the the rule of the twelve kings of the desert who rule with an iron fist. Uh, so it's it's in a kind of a, a reimagined Arabian Nights uh, tales sort of sort of world. That that sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah, it's it's um, I'm really enjoying it. I'm getting to the um, close to the climax, uh, or at least. I'm at the top of the hill, ready, getting ready to roll all the boulders down. So it's uh, it's it's a fun time in that book right now. That's great. So are you writing full time now, or are you do you have a day job as well? <laughs> yeah, I, I wish I was writing full time for yeah. sure, um, <laughs> uh, but no, uh, uh, not yet. Uh, that's that's the hope. Um, but I'm yeah, working. Yeah. Uh, I work for IBM uh, as a software consultant, so I'm still in the, the IT software yeah, yeah. world. Um, and oddly enough, that um, it doesn't interfere so much with my uh, my writing in terms of mental exhaustion. You know, mm-hmm. so, some people say that they have a day job that's creative, and when they get home, they're just they're, they're mentally exhausted, and that that part of their brain can't function anymore, uh, or at least very well. Uh, so it it works out um, fairly well for me. I, I steal time at night after the kids are in bed and and get my hour or so of writing in, and that that works for now. Great. And so where can people find you online if they're interested in learning more about you and your books? I have a website at quillings.com. That's Q-U-I-L-L-I-N-G-S.com. Uh, and I'll put a plug in for a uh, um, another podcast. Uh, so we are we are brothers in the podcast realm. Uh, I run a podcast called Speculate uh, with Greg Wilson, a fellow author, uh, and uh, you can find that at speculatesf.com. Great, great, and I'll have a link to that in the show notes as well. Um, great. Uh, I haven't had a chance to listen to that podcast yet, but I just added it to my to my. Um, podcasting app and look forward to listening to it soon. So yeah, great. Great. Well, again, we've been speaking with Brad Boulier, the author of the flames of Shadam Cora, which is available in bookstores. Now, Brad, thanks for doing the interview. Yeah. Great to be on. Thanks for having me. Sure. Sure.